thing. What's wrong with this thing? I think it's busted. Busted. What's going on, ladies, gentlemen, those beyond the binary, poets, perverts, explorers of all kinds, cool friends and big enemies. I have no idea. <laughs> I don't know. It's one of those days, man. It's one of those days. Uh, welcome to Bust Mouth on Q4 Radio, a show about rock and roll, sticking it to the man and your big stupid feelings, streaming around the world every single Monday from 12 p.m. to 2 p.m. on Apple Radio, the TuneIn app, 1680 a.m. in Chicago, and of course, QUE4.org. Charts. Uh, I'm J.W. Basilla, your host as always. Happy Monday. How's it going? I hope it's going well for you. You deserve it. I mean it. Thanks so much uh, for stopping by today. And uh, yeah, it's a little gloomy out there. We're getting further and further into this holiday season. We're, we're starting to hear um, all the songs uh, for the nine millionth time. Uh, the, the Christmas commercial that you thought was cute is no longer cute anymore. Now it's just annoying. And uh, I, I can't speak for you. I'm not a big Christmas fan. I know we've talked about this on the show uh, a bajillion and six times. But I'm personally not a really a Christmas fan. I'm not really into... Uh, holidays in general, for many of my bad memories as a child, are holiday-related. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Whatever. But um, sometimes you got to do it. You know, where it's out in the world, and you, and you just got to kind of do your best to keep your head down and try to ignore the silver bells and the bell ringing and other songs uh, that you hate. And then people saying Merry Christmas and then asking you, you know, well, you, don't, you, don't you love Christmas? And I'm like, no, uh, not at all. And they're like, don't you love all holidays? Like, no, I don't like holidays. Uh, they make me... Uh, uneasy and i can unpack that for years but it's not interesting just know that like i'm not one of these christmas people i do not think there's a war on christmas but damn it i would love it if all of a sudden we decided to launch one and i personally i will be the john connor of the war against christmas i'm just saying i would be i you can do i'll go through terminator rules and we can travel through time and i'll i'll uh i'll you know i'll set fire to an fao schwartz i don't know we'll figure something out Anyway, uh, speaking of big stupid feelings today, Melissa Dupre is my guest today. Her new show is at uh, Free Street Theater, and it has both audiences and critics alike all up in their feelings. And we're going to talk about it in the one o'clock hour. I've been uh, I've been very much in my own feelings for the last few days. I, there's just a lot of things. It's been a, it's been a busy week. I've been not sleeping terribly well, and uh, just had a lot of things going on lately. It's been an issue, um, you know. Um, yeah. Oh, interestingly enough, I was thinking about like what what was uh, interestingly enough, my my siblings and my fake cousin uh, came out to uh, the shop over the weekend. I came out to Redline, and it was great to see them. And we talked, and drank at great length, and, and we don't often get a chance to just talk and hang out without the rest of the family there, or without the kids there, and things. So it was it was really it was very pleasant, and it was uh, really cool that they came. And we all stayed up too late and drank too much, and all the things. And as we're talking, of course, I'm talking about my nieces, uh, whom I love, and uh, my eldest niece, um, Emmy, is is just she's a lot like me. I've always felt like we have we have similar reactions to things. We have similar feelings about things. We have uh, similar interests, and we uh, you know both are of the artistic bent. I think, and I could tell from a really young age. I went, ah, this kid's got some me in her, which is awesome. Um, and then the other night we're talking about it, and my sister says to me like, "Yeah, she's just like you." And it's and she starts to unravel why, like with emotional things and you know issues with uh, other kids and stuff. And I'm just like, oh no. Part of me was really flattered. Part of me was like, this is true. You know, it's really great to have a mini me out there. And I'm so glad that I'm going to have a, a young person that I could can look after and and, uh, and and have a and share a life with. And, you know, just have uh, some semblance of, of connection and, and decency. And, you know, you look at someone and you're like, ah, you're like me. So I get you and we get each other. And, and I, I was really flattered by that or not flattered so much, but I was uh, heartened by that. I was I was emboldened by that. And then I immediately went, ah, no, this is going to suck. Uh, because if she's anything like me, it's just going to be awful. Uh, like I, for example, she was, uh, her father was telling me that he, that she was, uh, she once told him recent or recently told him that uh, she loves the whole world. And then she got really sad that not everyone loves her back. And that went, Oh no, that was, Oh no, it sounds so familiar. Uh, so here's hoping that, uh, that she outgrows it all. And otherwise her parents are going to be calling me all the time. And, and who am I to give advice? Nobody. Don't take advice from me. I'm a moron. An absolute moron and a completely uh, stunted child. But uh, alas, I don't... What, what's going on, man? It's a weird day. I say that every week. I know that. But Mondays are always weird for me. It's, a, it's, it's like my... Mondays are like my Saturday, but I have to work on them. It's weird. Anyway, let's do the thing. Uh, here's a new song from our friend Bethany Thomas. Uh, friend of the show. 
Recent Busted Mouth alum. Ooh, uh, before I forget, Busted Mouth alum Katie Caden still in there, still in the top eight uh, at The Voice. You could, of course, watch that tonight on NBC. Deal with the Christmas commercials. I recommend DVR and then go back and watch it uh, in high speed uh, and so you can zip through the commercials. So, like, hang out for a minute and then start it a little bit later. Have dinner, etc. It's one way to go about it. Anyway, uh, she's awesome. She continues to crush it, and we're so happy for Katie. And I'm also so happy for Bethany Thomas, also a Busted Mouth alum. She just put out a new single, and it's pretty dope. This is called Deescalator. It's the rock and roll on Busted Mouth. Listen to it. Deescalator. Who are you trying to hate? Is it mainly yourself? What is the role that you play? Neither hero nor villain, no way. Oh, you can't walk this line forever. You can't walk this line forever. We're just here. It's a Monday. It's a, it's a gloomy one. It's another Monday here. In, it's another gloomy Monday in Chicago. For all the Mondays in Chicago are going to be gloomy until probably, I don't know, August. And then they go back to garbage uh, come September. So that's exciting. Anyway, hope you're having a good day and hope you're hanging in with us. Of course, you can find all the tunes at uh, the Buster Mouth, the steamed audio companion playlist to Electric Boogaloo, a playlist so contrived and stupid. I named it something contrived and stupid twice, but it's free. It's on Spotify. Everything we play, you can find it right there. Just search for Busted Mouth if you're not uh, already there. Of course, if you're listening in the future, you already know what's going on. Otherwise, if you want to hear this uh, show as a podcast, you can always get the rebrand and the repackage uh, via Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, pretty much anywhere where they have podcasts. Uh, you can see my big stupid face talking about your big stupid feelings. And speaking of big stupid feelings, mm, pro Look at the pro. Uh, speaking of big, stupid feelings, my guest uh, today, Melissa Dupre, is in uh, all, doing all kinds of amazing stuff. And uh, you apparently got all of the audiences all up in their feelings this week with your new show. They're so in their feelings. They're really um, in it deep, about elbow deep about it. So they're uh, having a good time being totally sappy and sad and heartbroken and realizing their traumas on their sleeve. So, <laughs> so what's all right? So what's that like? Uh, it's excruciating, you know. I I'm not a big fan of uh, trauma for trauma's sake, especially when it's on stage because we're in a uh, play in a uh, theater together, and so when we are in those spaces, you know, it's not it's not the fourth wall. There right. is no fourth wall really protecting us from an energy exchange that's happening, especially when we're seeing something that might be triggering. Um, but I feel like in this day and age, if you're willing to watch a three-hour slave play and watch <laughs> Word, someone yeah. be completely violated on stage and not feel anything about it you're you're able to sit in an hour and a half to talk about real trauma that is sitting with you right now due sure. to loss due to grief okay due to mental wellness spectrums of mental wellness so i think that if we're going to call anything like trauma porn this is not it this is actually <laughs> trauma reality yeah word okay so let's get into all the feelings in a minute yes. we're gonna get there we're gonna get yes. there First of all, hello. I haven't seen you. In Hi. Like, I haven't seen you in like a year and change. I at haven't least. seen it's actually been forever. A longer than that. Probably. First of all, you look great. Hey, thank you. Second of all, your big stupid mouth is even bigger and more stupid. So congratulations on that. Uh, thank you. You That's have nice amazing space in here. Um, thank so you. proud of the work you're doing. And it's been a while, yeah. Yeah, it has been. It's not being nice to me because I'm gonna like it's mm-hmm. gonna ruin my. It's gonna mess it's up this go- whole. I'm gonna try to make you cry it's by gonna, the end of this show. It's not like it wouldn't be the first time, but uh, it's <laughs> it's really off brand for me to accept compliments anyway. And I love doing a podcast right here in Humble Park. You know, Melissa yeah. Dupre of the Humble Park Dupres is right, my right. tagline, my intro to everything, um, because this is three generations of legacy here doing movement work, doing community work, doing crazy Puerto yep. Rican stuff. Um, so I'm really grateful to even just be able to have a podcast that's right here in the community that I could just jump yeah. over to. Yeah, and we're really proud of the new space. I mean, it's not a, it's a, it's a growing space, but we've gone a long way in a very short period of time here at Q4. And I can, love you know. this space. Shout out to um, Denise Santina and Cristiana Gutierrez of Books, Brunch, and Botanicals, Word. who 
create and curate a quarterly um, vending and resource exchange fair for mental wellness and everything that's decolonized from the medical industrial complex. It's really about how to access your own root work for mm-hmm. your healing. And they have awesome things like how to make your own candles and oils and tinctures and natural everything and kombucha everything and, um, you know, altar work. And it's really tapping into the inner witch in everybody. All right. This is the most hippie this show has gone in a very <laughs> short period of time. I love that we're getting it. Um, let's start. I'm going to start with the question. I want to hit all those things. But I want to start with the question I ask everybody because uh, just I like consistency like that. Uh, what was the first record you ever bought with your own money? It was. Are you ready for this? Yes, it, I am. It was Red Fox's album. His, yeah, that's the very first man, comedy album. Shut up. Are you mm-hmm. serious? Red Fox. Mm-hmm. That, okay, well, you just won the game. Like, mine's Do- Motley Crue, Dr. Feelgood. So that's mm-hmm. a completely different ball. Wait a minute, you bought Red Fox. You paid money as a, as a young person for a Red Fox record. Yeah, and I wasn't a young person. I was a complete adult. Because I didn't get into vinyl until I moved oh, to Chicago. Okay, okay. I didn't move to. I mean, I moved to Chicago. I moved back to Chicago, and I really didn't have. You know, the vinyls that I had were like the Muppet Babies. Oh, sure. Okay. That was given to me. But right. when I when I started when I first got a record player, I I bought this vintage turntable that turns out from a hi fi mm-hmm. radio system. Yeah, yeah. So it's like those old wooden. Oh yeah, it ha- yeah, yeah. It's beautiful. I went to Milwaukee. I found it on Craigslist. Went all the way to Milwaukee. Gave these older white couple like this biggest sab story of of like I just <laughs> lost my mother and I just want to play records for her. <laughs> and they were like, Oh God, here, have it for free. <laughs> oh, oh snap! Okay. Yes. And so I was like, great, now I need records. Yeah. And so I went uh, I went to a shop on Fullerton, and the very first one I pulled out was um, Red Fox. Red and right Fox. after that was the um, Richard Pryor. Okay. So I bought comedy albums. Sure. Because that's, you know, I'm a stand-up comic, and I thought, well, let me just sit alone with my feelings mm-hmm. and laugh about it I first. Feel that. And then the first music album that I bought um, was, I believe it was... <laughs> Because the album cover looks so amazing. It's a Spiro Hira album. It's this like this really funky Latin jazz band that it's my dad's total music. It's his total vibe. Yeah, yeah. But I knew who that was because he'd be like, you have to listen to the most obscure music to actually be involved in it. So like he'd give me Ambrosia instead of Motown. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I got you. I got you. <laughs> and so Spiro Hira is like this. 18 piece jazz funk collective and i found it and the album is just so tropical and beautiful and pretty cool, cool. so that's the first music one so i think it's cool i mean i think a lot of us have gone back to vinyl and started buying records yes. as adults and stuff do you remember what the first uh like any album you like whether it's digital or cassette tape or cd or whatever it is the first thing you ever bought with your own money yeah it's uh tina turner okay it was a um it was a private dancer Oh wow! <laughs> How old were you? I was in junior high. And okay, it was twelve, and so I was while well, everybody was going around. Like I think, I think Kid Rock had just came out. Um, I think because uh, you were born in like what the late eighties, eighty five, eighty five. Oh, so you're like okay, so we're only a couple years apart. Yeah, eighty five. Yeah. But it was I, I. I had a thing for Tina Turner, so I was actually like going around with my Walkman. It was a cassette. Mm-hmm. I'm your private dancer. Dance off for money. Do oh. what you want me to do. I had it's too much so, soul. I was so I was I so you. in my feelings um, as a young person. Uh, I was listening to it was stuff that was like way back, but that's because my mom. Like we were yeah. living in a car for six months, just listening to music. Wow. And so I got stuck on Tina Turner, but it was the it was like the rap. It was it was her breakout rock album i just saw what's love had to do with it oh she, she let me watch it and oh, so i was like okay. oh tina she's my idol yeah i learned a lot watching that movie i remember seeing it on who knows where you see it you know mm-hmm. I, I was probably 11 10 somewhere in there <clears throat> or however old I, I was i remember seeing that movie just being like Ugh, yeah no, it was brutal this is wild also like uh i learned about cocaine yeah. Not that I didn't know what cocaine was, but I never saw like someone do it on screen before. Right. So like, I remember Fishburne's, Fishburne's an like, animal. Yeah, he's pulling it like doing the full pinky right. nail thing <laughs> off his hand, and I'm like, oh, yeah. you could just do cocaine like that? No, just free. Yeah, right it, was, it was that movie was just wild. And Angela to, Bassett was uh, the ageless and delightful Angela Bassett was of course amazing. Her arms were goals. Yo, like just her, just Angela Bassett arms Yo. is a still living proof for me. I had to Namya Horenga kill myself after that movie, and I was just scared of men. <laughs> From then on. But I also was like, I and I was at the age where I was the young girl in the choir, just like bebop into gospel. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was like, oh, this is me. So like, this is how I could be or this is how sure. I could aspire to be like this rock legend. But apparently I have to go through so much pain. And so I was like, OK, 
I'm ready. I'm ready to be hurt for the good of the art, right? Right. Yeah. My E True Hollywood story is going to be epic. Yeah, I feel that. I feel that. <laughs> so, did you grow up in the church? Is um, that what I heard? I, I grew up in this church, this Roman Catholic private school, St. Helens on Augusta. Like right down the street? Augusta at Western. And so I grew up there. And they made us do, I was in choir, but they made us do prayers in Polish. And really? choir songs in Polish. And huh. so I, I'd be rocking it. I'd be like, I got it. Um, So, yeah, I grew up singing choir in a Catholic school, and I was in Catholic school most of my elementary days. Was your family religious? No. Or was it just the best school in the neighborhood? It was the the safest school in the neighborhood, and it made me wear a uniform. Yeah, right. Um, And I was defiant. I was super defiant there. So, like, they still had corporal punishment. It was, like, the last school in Chicago get to get rid of it. Out. They didn't get rid of it until 1992, but <sighs> then trickle down. It was still there till 95. So I had, like, Sister Helen, whatever the hell. And um, and she was always giving me a hard time. But, you know, I loved that school because it was a classroom that always had everything. It had Filipino, Polish, Mexican, um, Puerto Rican, black. It, it had yeah, yeah. everything because it was, like, it was a really good school in the neighborhood. And you just continue. You just you never left Humboldt Park, really, did you? I did actually. In the in the mid nineties, gang violence got so bad there was yeah. gang initiations happening all over. And here yeah. is a cross between um, vice lords mm-hmm. and Latin kings and a whole bunch of others. And they were doing initiations all over the place. And so my mom was like, you know what? This isn't safe. This private school is also getting really expensive. And so she decided to take me out of Chicago. And we traveled for six months. And this is what the show is about is our life on the road together, trying to find a better life because she just knew she wanted better for me. So we found Hmm. a public school in Houston. We settled in Houston. And I ended up being there for 12 years. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I graduated from the University of Houston with a bachelor's okay. degree in performance arts. And it was funny because I was like, oh, no, I want to go back to Chicago for the arts because, of course. Yeah, right. Um, but it turns out all of the professors in the university were from Chicago. So I got a Chicago education no for word. Texas Price. Look at you. It was great. It all works out. It Everything's coming out. up Millhouse. I dig it. I didn't. I um, say that in my show on accident. Oh my everything's God. coming up Millhouse? On opening night. <laughs> on opening <laughs> Opening night, I have uh, a scene, and it's a really hard. I, we'll talk about it later, but you know, I it's so funny because I never say that outside of a whiskey hour with my girlfriends at sure. two a.m. Where I come out and I didn't get a ticket on my car. I'm like, everything's coming up, Millhouse. Yep, it's my favorite phrase. It, it is my favorite phrase, and it's just like a very small cult following that knows exactly what that means. And so I have a scene, uh, a therapy scene at the end of a really hard moment. And this therapist is talking to me about a tool I could use to make sure that I'm I'm setting boundaries for myself. And I'm like, what? This is amazing. Everything's just coming up. <laughs> and like non-scripted. Five, yeah, yeah, non-scripted. I, it just came out of me and five people in the audience lost it. Yeah, I, that's one of those phrases. Like I, there are a lot of times when people like if someone uses a double negative, my brain can't go. I'm not not licking frogs. Right. You know, like I'm not not. <laughs> not yeah, it's just, but that's the thing. Like, there are all these quotes. If you grew up like our age, mm-hmm. that Simpsons were on like five times, six times a day. Because yeah. you get like that double block at five and six o'clock or whatever it was. And so then it's three nine, and five. So yeah, it was like it was when the kids came out. Constantly, constantly. And they, and the shows would like a premiere. The new episode would come out in September, and then by like February, it was already in syndication. So it was just like all that that golden era of Simpsons stuff. I know I could quote all of them, like every episode, the first two hundred probably. Fun fact: yeah. my mother used to work at Fox Thirty Two. Oh yeah, um, back in the day, in the nineties, it was when Wonder Years was out, mm-hmm. and we were um, volunteering for the Taste of Chicago, and they were looking for people to be the Simpsons in these big costumes, in these, like big full <laughs> on yellow, yeah, yeah. thick styrofoam, and then velour padded, mm-hmm. velcro padded uh, stuff. I was Lisa Simpson. That's pretty for impressive. For two summers in a row. Did you make money on it? No, of course what? not. I was a minor. Yeah, but they didn't pay you? <laughs> no, not at all. They're Fox. That's whack. <laughs> That's whack. All right. No, but I did it out of the love of it because I was like, I, I got to go to it's a still pretty cool. festival free. I was dying. I was dying, but it was really cool. It's like, I have had a hand in the Simpsons empire. It's important and impressive. And you keep having a hand. I, what I find really interesting is that... Um, with Humboldt Park, like when I when I sent you the email of like, oh, here's where all the info is. I in my head, I went like, she probably lives like two minutes away from the studio. Yeah. <laughs> She's probably been here before. And then this morning, you were like, yeah, I'll just come later. It's I'm literally three minutes away. I went, mm-hmm. okay, well now it all now it all lines up. Humboldt's wild though. Like I keep, I was going through 
like, I, I drove, you know, sometimes I drive by at night and I'm leaving the studio late. Mm-hmm. And I, you see, like, a not for nothing, but, like, you know, a, a, a white woman with a tiny dog walking through the park. And I'm like, this is privilege, a different world. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it truly is different. And, you know, you, you realize in the summertime how many white people have moved in over the winter. Because mm-hmm. then I'm like, I didn't know that there were this many patios out here. Yeah. And, um dogs and so i i feel like it really all started for me in the in the noticeable change um when the humble park beach was about to shut down Mm -hmm. and a lot of the community rose up wanting those resources but most of them were because of um other white community members had moved in and now they wanted to benefit off of those resources and um the puerto ricans were a majority of the organizing body that wanted to open up that beach again. Um, But really realizing that it wasn't, that I don't think the city really cared until there were more um, folks that moved into the neighborhood pressing for it. Yeah. Well, and I think I have this theory. I don't know if it's uh, founded or not, but the the unintentional, the great unintentional gentrifiers of a lot of neighborhoods Mm -hmm. are actually college students. So, Right. Like if you go through and drive through the neighborhoods, I mean off mm-hmm. the main drag, we're in Chicago Avenue, mm-hmm. but if off the main drag and stuff, like a lot, most of the streets are packed with cars with like Michigan license plates, right. Ohio license plates and stuff. So I think like a lot of people, you know, parents, wealthy parents or whatever it is, are like, well, we just get an apartment for you, for you and you can get this. Mm-hmm. Oh, look at this new big place. And you, you know, there, I think that yeah, I, 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 the- I just have a feeling that like a lot of the gentrification starts with people buying like out of state white parents getting apartments for their white kids. But that's that's how it's always been and it's sure. always happened. So but this is we are now in the third generation of gentrifiers where at first it was what we were calling yuppies, right? Is right. like this young upper privileged yep. upper class people who were coming into the city from the suburbs for their college, right? Mm-hmm. So like yes, that yep. but that started 20 years ago. Sure. So now those people are now um, in their 40s with their first child with their dog yep, now yep, married they've, yep. they've said they've been in this in the neighborhood i've lived here for eight nine ten years now i was like great you were the first wave and mm-hmm. now you're now we're seeing the younger wave of artists students and they're from all races so yeah. i don't believe at all that gentrification looks like one race and looks like one thing sure. i do believe it is uh, a commodification of real estate and property is yeah. that we as Black and brown people who've always been marginalized and disenfranchised were never allowed to own our own property. We're never issued homeownership loans. We're never allowed to actually plantar bandera, like we say the Puerto Ricans like really plant our, mm-hmm. our flag. Um, it's coming from people who have the economic means to do so, sure. and we're in the third wave of it. So now we're in the third wave of like students, and and they're gonna they're gonna be the first ones to say like, oh, but we're broke. But it was like, yeah, but you're living four deep, mm-hmm. and so you're only paying two hundred dollars rent. Where like someone like me, I have to pay a thousand dollars because I live alone, right. and I'm trying to hold down in, in a neighborhood I grew up in, and I can't afford anymore yeah. because of y'all. Yeah, I get no, I'm with you, right? I so. Get it. I mean, I've watched it happen. Like, I first moved, I got my first apartment in the city, and I think in 2002, 2003. Mm-hmm. And um, it was, you know, lived in my own, lived in Uptown, or not my own, it was with another guy, but lived in Uptown in on the south end of Uptown. But I remember, like, looking at apartments around here because they mm-hmm. were affordable. Right. And just going, like, this is not for me. Like, I'm, right. I don't belong in this neighborhood. Like, I, it's, it, it felt that way anyway. And now it's a, com- it's a completely different neighborhood. And it's, and it's a struggle that we have to keep, not keep it intact, but keep it ours because Puerto Ricans, just as a demographic of people, we don't even have our own island. We don't sure. even have our own country. So we're constantly displaced. So when you're talking about colonized people, it's it's an even more touchier subject. We're not saying, like, no, you can't live here. But we're also saying, like, what are you doing to keep us here? What are you doing to keep this neighborhood alive sure. and what it stands for? Because if not, you are you are participating in the erasure of our people and our culture and the community that we established for ourselves because mm-hmm. we were pushed out of Lakeview. We were pushed out of Cabrini Green area. We were pushed out of Madison. Yeah. You know, wherever we tried to go, we were pushed out of. Sure. And so this was ours because we made it ours. So that that's that's the instinctual, um, uh, that's the vibe that, that you'll get from us in this Humble Park area. Yes, I'm talking to you who just saw that for rent sign over by Washtenaw because <laughs> Bubble Land is right there. Um, it, you know, think about the consciousness of what you're doing and what you're participating in when you do take up space. Yeah. Well, and I think that's a good way of putting it. So it's not a matter of, uh, because in, in theory, right, everyone should be able to live wherever they feel comfortable living, right? 
Maybe. 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 Okay. Maybe. I don't know. I. It's obviously like a, a thick ass subject. It's not mm. like it's certainly not it's black. It's super and white. layered. It's, yeah. it's, compl- it's complicated. It's complex. There are people who are, um, and I think we need to like stray away from gentrifying gentrifying being a buzzword of race because it's really about economic liberation. But when Agreed. you when you as a white person are in a community of color, then I think yes, it definitely is about race and privilege. And I think that if you are trying to um, really be a part of a community, be a part of a community and an ally and, mm-hmm. and not say like, I have every right because that's entitlement. Yeah. Well, and, and I, people go into new neighborhoods and then immediately if it's it, like, as soon as I see a dog groomer pop mm-hmm. up, I'm like, all right, it's over. We got to go. Right. It's over now. Like I would die to live in Hyde Park. I'd love to live sure. in Hyde Park, but even, even me, you know, being somebody that might be displaced here, what does it mean for me to, to sure. also go in to a community of color, um, a long established black affluent community um and take up space there so it's i would pose the same questions like how would i be contributing or how would i be taking up space from somebody else sure so what's the difference between contributing and taking up space uh contributing is i think it's a it's a money issue like how where am i putting my dollars versus like how, how am i benefiting from other services sure so, like, if you move to, so we use Hyde Park as the example, right? Because neither one of us lives or is from Hyde Park, sure. right? Yeah. So, if you go to Hyde Park and you are, and obviously it's a, a, a I mean, the, it's the South Side; it's a predominantly mm-hmm. black area specifically. So, if you're in that neighborhood and you are spending money at the businesses in the neighborhood, and you are, you know, frequenting restaurants that are already there, and mm-hmm. you're like being a part of that thing, mm-hmm. um, that's obviously a different deal than like going into Hyde Park and be like, you know, what? we should open up a Panera. Exactly. Right. You know, exactly. And you know, contributing into black economies, black owned businesses, making mm-hmm. sure that everything that I get in my apartment, you know, is not from IKEA. But, sure. You know, trying my best to be as um, conscious about where my dollars are going, and also like if there are community. Um, organizations and programs like how am I lifting those how am I censoring those Um, especially if it's housing you know like did I just take a housing opportunity away from someone and how can I like reinvest into that yeah yeah and that's a good way of putting it I mean I grew up obviously like I'm I'm a white person. Uh, my people come from... What? From, yeah, I know, right? Did you just come out white? I thought uh, you were Italian. I, I am Italian. Well, that's what I was getting at. I'm a white person. <laughs> Italians used to be a different... It, Italians weren't always considered uh, straight up white people, right? Mm. Um, mm-hmm. uh, even though... Yeah, okay, great. Moving on. Um, <laughs> we can do a deconstructing oh, whiteness we're not. Oh, we can, but I don't know. I, I'm just... I'm using it for this specific example right. of um, when my when my family came here in the around the turn of the century, the mm-hmm. 1900s, not the last one, obviously. Uh, they came from Italy through Ellis Island and then essentially settled in Chicago in, on Taylor Street, right? Mm-hmm. And then yep. had had a bunch of businesses and were there and were trying to thrive. I mean, we weren't always winning, but like we're trying to thrive in that neighborhood. And then the original mayor Daly was like. Nah, let's shut all that down because it was the Irish Italian thing. Yep. Put the uh, put the freeway right through the right through the neighborhood. Tried to shut down everything. Built up Rush community and essentially all the people that were in all the Italians that mm-hmm. was Little Italy. Now it's nothing, but Little Italy used to be a thriving community that just right. got broken up and displaced. I mean, mm-hmm. and my family was one of those families that got like, oh, we can't af- we can't afford to live in the neighborhood that we contributed to for. 50 years or whatever it is. That's why I think redlining is definitely sure. like it was a racial and economic seg- mm-hmm. segregation. It wasn't, you know, it was to benefit those who will continue to always benefit from wealth and class. Of course. Yeah. You know, you know. Uh, so how much of that shows up in your work? So um, a lot of that showed up in my work that I was doing at Free Street. I was the director of production right. and community relations over at Free Street. So everything I was doing was about calling in the Chicago history and the narratives mm-hmm. and showing how they have made an impact on our society today where we have um, disparities in black and brown communities and how that's not in co- coincidence to the geographic location of where you're at in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, also thinking about um, the disparities in education is like it's not it's not a coincidence that most of the 50 schools that were closed down were in black and brown communities. Right. And so everything that we did at Free Street, um, Free Street is a social justice theater organization that's been around for 50 years. We're now in our 51st season. And over the summer, um, we did a pretty ambitious year of production 
and all of it had to do around survival. It's like, look, we have, as people of color in Chicago, we have been oppressed through our communities. Mm-hmm. We have seen our communities disappear. We've seen our culture disappear. We've seen our livelihood disappear. Mm-hmm. We have our families being separated and displaced by ICE raids and immigration um, laws. We say we're a sanctuary city, but where are those resources? Um, we say that we are um, one of the most up-to-date, technologically advanced cities in the world, but yet we are, um, black and brown communities are also the targeted for, you know, boots and tickets and sure. all these things. It's happening everywhere, but when you look at it, there are there's statistical data that shows that black and brown communities suffer the most. Absolutely. And so my work at Free Street really had to do with, like, what are the stories that we're not seeing, especially in the arts community? Because, man, if we do another, you know... If we do another play by some older white playwright and we call it Chicago Theater, I will just shoot myself <laughs> because I just I cannot I cannot sit here and allow for transplants who got their their excuse me, their degree um, over in Iowa City mm-hmm. and come here and do a play about essentially nothing and call it Chicago theater. Sure. Um, Because when we're talking about Chicago theater, I think free street is a first responder to real issues that happen. Yeah. And so we've created large full on production plays about, um, you know, lead in the water in schools in Chicago. Sure. And that's our youth program making excellent work. Yeah. And then our multi-generational program is making work about, surviving like what does your joy require and what does your resistance require because while we're doing movement work in chicago we still have to figure out like why are we even doing this if we're not happy here anyway you know like what are the beautiful things that we love about chicago if chicago were to have a zombie apocalypse happen tomorrow yes what would we want and what would we fight for to survive and what would we say here zombies take this because it was never good for us to begin with Mm -hmm. and so we made a play about that it was an apocalyptic um, play about survival and what we would say like yeah we definitely want pizza to survive but not pizza from Pequod's because it's burnt anyway but like the pizza (laughs) from John's on Western you know like football pizza that's what we want to survive Um, you know things like that and we're, we're really thinking about the real Chicagoans the real Chicagoans who have been here who have suffered who know about Kaminsky Park who know about Sears Tower who knows about you know, the things that make Chicago, because right now it's changing so fast. Yeah. It's changing oh, yeah. faster than it has ever had before. And mm-hmm. a lot of things are just being erased. Yeah, you know? you're absolutely you're absolutely right. And we, and we don't know we don't know how to save it. And while we're doing beautiful artistic things, it's not rippling out to um, affect local and state governments. So we're also thinking about, like, what are the policies that we need our older people to know about that's going to keep our neighborhoods the way that we need them in order to survive? Otherwise, you you know, the yuppies can keep Chicago. We're all just going to go live in Harving, Harlem Irving Park and make Berwyn happen, you know? Like, <laughs> sure. What's going to happen to Chicago if Who we're knows? not in it? Yeah, well, and this is like the second wave of, and I don't want to use the term gentrification because we've already stepped away from that, but yeah. like through gr- like rapid change. Super like, development. Yeah, super development. Thank you. Right, right. Super development and super evolution in the eyes of uh, de- uh, of progress, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we're we not political. We don't take political stands, but we do take stands against um candidates who seek erasure and who seek to continue disenfranchising because that's historically how chicago was you know was founded we we know chicago has always been a corrupt city we know we know who our founders were of course we know you know where our money's come from we know who likes to keep it and we know all the five families who keep it trapped um and then like Mm -hmm. dish out money because the narratives were good you know right right um but we're we're really pushing for equity and inclusion, real diversity. And that comes from having people, having um, POCs in place that are not just people of color, but they're also queer, they're also trans, sure. they're also non-binary folk who are in positions to really shelve out some of those um, opportunities and funds to people who they know are doing work because of where yeah. they come from. Well, and you saw touched on older people, and I thought that was a really good uh a good thing to touch on specifically like as we move into recreational marijuana being a brand new and we don't have to go too far into this Mm. but this is something i talk about in the show but cannabis specifically um 
being a part of now the Chicago economy. Yeah. Like, it's undeniable. It has right. to exist. And right, I, but yet we still have incarcerated people who are, yo, you know, who, yeah. who have been put away for the smallest marijuana charge. And so uh-huh. how are we going to economically right. benefit if we still have incarcerated people? Yep. So, like, I say, I firmly believe that we cannot indulge and even partake in that economy until every single last one of them are free. First. Okay. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a grander stance than I would take personally because, you know. <clears throat> as a consumer, uh, you know, things like that. But, uh, what but I mean, consume in the same ways you've always been consuming. You've Wait. never not you've never not been able to find it. You've never not been able to get it. But, in, but when we start talking about legalizing and capitalizing off of it, mm-hmm. while we still have incarcerated citizens in the jails, we cannot benefit or make a, an economy out of it until every single last one of them are free. So you keep getting it the same way you've been getting it and you run your risk the same way you've been running your risk. Until everybody is free from being hmm. from being um, penalized from it. Okay, all right. We might. I don't know how deep we want to go on this. Uh, we <laughs> might have to disagree on that one. Uh, and I and I think I think that really depends on like uh, uh, you know where how we benefit off of it, right? Because I I think that most of the most of the companies and economy that are going to be able to profit on it are white. Because they've been able to have, I mean, unless you're going to like really back up this black owned cannabis business that delivers and stuff like sure. that. Like, yes, you can do that. But then how are we also freeing the people who are still suffering and incarcerated from it while it's legalized now? Okay. Because we, we, you can't have one without the other without participating in the capitalization of death and incarceration. Yeah. I mean, I think we're. We're going to two different points, right? So right. the first point I was bringing up was there's a specific alderman in the West Loop was yeah. like, if you want to, if you want to open uh, a dispensary in my ward, you have to have a black partner. Period. Yeah. Like, right? Awesome. Cool. Yes. So that's what I was getting at. Yes. Is like if that's a small, very very small thing or relatively small action that could lead to a big piece of progress. I right? think. I think absolutely, and I and I love that he's saying that. However, I think that while we're building on those economies, there are going to be people who are are. You know, where would those dollars then be going if it's not to free the people who are incarcerated still under um, laws that that we have to like retroactively think about right getting them out at I, the same if I, not I, at I the mean, same I, time or first mm-hmm. I, I think it's the first I was like we can't participate in that until this is done first I think either at the same time or at the at at the rate in which we are going to be able to capitalize and like build some economy off of it those dollars need to go somewhere okay I mean, where is it going to benefit i mean that alderman is also like when when those when the alderman co-signs on that they benefit off of those companies they benefit off of the economy of they course. benefit off of the stimulus of and rewards of course right so of course they're going to say that yeah i don't disagree yeah. with you yeah. and I, I think i think that the chances of someone going back and granting clemency to hundreds of thousands of marijuana cases mm-hmm. is almost a zero percentage like of the chance of it actually happening. It's starting to happen in in a lot of um counties. Okay. And that's nationally. It's starting to happen. Okay. Um there were 400 uh cases filed and I don't know exactly what state it was. Um but it was in a southern state that really wanted to push for the legalization of marijuana, but the the governor at the time would be like, "What are we going to do with the people incarcerated first? And so like their plan was to do that and mm-hmm. so they're working at a rapid rate in order to release those citizens. So it's just like where your priorities, where okay. where where those principles lie. So I mean, yeah, it's slow and the percentage is low. However, I I personally believe that that's something that we have to really take into consideration before I even start participating in that cuz I won't. And that's fair. Yeah. And that's fair. Um, I say this as like I'm doing a benefit for uh, a dispensary tonight. I mean, but it's all you know. exciting. Yeah. No, it's super exciting because I'm a huge fan of the benefits and power of CBD oil and sure. um, and THC. And like I have arthritis. My sure. grandmother, she's got rickety knees. Like I'm home making some cannabis oil and rubbing it on. I'm seeing the benefits of it. And I'm I'm so for all of the medicinal uses and the recreational uses. Yeah. I'm just like, you know, at the same, t- it's the same way I think about organics. Like how organic is this? What I'm, what, what child is suffering when I'm participating in it? All of it. Sure. Just thinking about all of it. But it's hard to play it from, and I am a medicinal advocate and mm-hmm. a medicinal card holder and all that. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to get into the medicinal side of things. If you're buying it the way you've always bought it. Right. So if you're meeting Steve in the parking lot mm-hmm. behind Walmart or whatever to get your bag, 
Like, I can't trust that from a medicinal standpoint. Because when you buy weed from uh, a street dealer, like, what you're getting is weed. You get whatever the hell you get. Mm -hmm. You have no idea where it came from, who brought it, who stepped on it. You have no idea. If it's sprayed, you have no concept. So it's really tough for me. So, But when I go into into a dispensary and talk, walk with someone who's actually trained in this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I talk about this and the percentage of T- active THC versus THCA and how those concentrates work together and mm-hmm. then like you know, CBD ratios and all that kind of stuff. Those are things you can't do on the street. Right. So it almost, so like if we stick to a strictly street economy, it almost remove, it removes a very large portion of the actual efficacy of the medical stance. Right. But that's also, that's also the inaccessibility of high level grade marijuana because you, one, you have to have a medicinal card. Sure. Two, you might have to have insurance. You might have to have a doctor. I do not. I'm on Medicaid. Sure. Right. And so like just the, the opportunities afforded for people to always have access to a doctor, first of all, is a question of privilege, right? right? It's, it's, it's access. And so a lot of people who absolutely need it, are not able to get access to a doctor who's well, going to be able to to prescribe it because sure. two um, a lot of the a lot of the Medicaid doctors in in my network they won't do that. There is not a city of Chicago doctor who will accept Medicaid or insurance for a marijuana prescription. Right. There is not a single one. I've right. done all the research. Right. I've written about this. There is not one that'll do it. So what I did was I just saved up my money. And then eventually just put the go and went, and now I have a stack of cash to pay the doctor prescription, like whatever right, it was, right? right. So, money, and I understand it's, it's, this privilege. It's access, yeah. It is access. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not, I don't, it's not, a, I don't have insurance either. Yeah. Like, I got to try to get new insurance this week, and it's a Isn't it nightmare. wild? It's a nightmare. It's wild. I'm a grown man. I can't get insurance, and that whole thing, uh, I got bumped from my old insurance because I was making, or I, I wasn't making enough money to qualify, at the time, qualify. at the time I mm-hmm. applied, I was not making enough money to qualify for ACA insurance. So then they bumped me to Medicaid, right? And that took uh, months. And in the process of the time me getting bumped to Medicaid, mm-hmm. I got a new job and started making more money. And then and they're then like, you, you no longer the, yeah. apply for oh, Medicaid. Yeah. <laughs> you have to wait till next November to apply again for ACA. It was either that or pay $500 a month out of pocket, which I don't have 500 bucks laying around to pay for just in case insurance. I just, just don't. Just the just the debacle that you have had to go through. Just, just me, in yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Just in you. Just imagine the crisis we're at for medical care. You're absolutely correct. And, and how it affects everything. It affects our ability to even contribute into a legalized medicinal yeah. care for with weed and cannabis. You know, like yeah. I I have to run again. I was talking about risk. Like I have to run that risk because I you know we can't afford it. We mm-hmm. can't afford to do things the right way. Sure. What is the right way? And so like then we get penalized and criminalized for it. Agreed. I I don't I don't disagree with you. And I say we as in like right. you could have got busted too. You know. Like, and I <laughs> right? have gotten real close a few times. Right. <laughs> this is still a PG show, right? We're not naming. Oh no, names I mean we're adults. Like, yeah. We're adults. I mean, but we yeah. just can't curse on the radio. Right, That's about course. it. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. Yeah. We agree on a lot of things. I wish we could go back and expunge every single marijuana mm-hmm. uh, uh, arrest and traffic value, like everything. At, at a I really rate, wish at a, we could. At a rate in which I think that it would also, you know, this industry needs to benefit because I think a lot of people are ready to get rich off of it. Just, you know, everybody, everybody wants to be able to have economic liberation in any way they can. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is an exciting industry to to, to invest in. Um, you know, if I had $500,000 sitting in my back pocket, I would be investing in technologies around the cannabis industry. Of like, that's exactly what I would do. However, I, I, I would not be able to um, rightfully benefit off of it while there's other people still suffering from it. That's fair. Yeah. I feel you. I do feel you. And um, uh, I want I want weed things everywhere. Like some of the practitioners at my show, they are herbalists and naturopaths. Mm-hmm. And so they're teaching people how to, um, of course, like you're not going to have the purest things. But they're teaching they're teaching folks the benefit and uh, destigmatizing marijuana use. Um, because we're, we're talking about like not maybe your 23-year-old, but maybe your 53-year-old mm-hmm. that has been on medications all her life for arthritis. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about, like, let's get that off of your liver and get something natural in of you. Of course, yeah. Um, something anti-inflammatory, something that'll ease your pain, something that'll help you sleep at night, which will regulate a lot more of your um, uh, hormone and nervous cycles. And so, like, we're, we're really pushing for that. Um, and we're pushing for it in a, again, decolonized way. So even thinking about the industry, like that industry is still participating in capitalism. And what I like to see is um, breaking that down into more of this indigenous ancestral work, the way that we were always handling cannabis, the way that we were mm-hmm. always like um, treating whatever came from the earth as an herb, as a as a solve, as sure. um, a way of healing 
And I think all of that is really healthy conversations. Um, But the way to the way that I think we um, I'd like to approach it, especially the way that we talk about in our play is that it's elemental. It comes from the earth. It comes. It's not wrong. It's not criminalized. It comes from God. It comes from um, Mother Nature. It comes from our ancestors. Our ancestors knew how to heal ourselves. Mm -hmm. Our ancestors knew how to work with these things. And so I think it's I think it's uh, I think it's all really exciting conversations to have. I'd like to look at it towards the way of the way in the path that allows our people as much freedom and healing as possible. Sure. I agree. And I I do absolutely agree. And I I think that I think to go at at like an either or is maybe a little too much as a solution. It's hard. Because I still want to pay my rent and be as, as like woo woo as I can. Of course. Of course. Uh, Let's be real. Like I, 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 some of the stuff I do get is from Whole Foods. (laughs) (laughs) When Whole Foods start selling weed, we're really going to be in trouble. The fact that they're selling sage is already a tall tell sign. What you mean? Uh, Sage and Palo Santo and all. I mean, I I understand sage, but but like, is it a thing that wouldn't be sold at Whole Foods? Is that a new thing? I'm sure it would in the future. Like cannabis, everything. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's talk about your show. Let's get <laughs> really. Woo, yeah. Let's get on to the politics sad <laughs> and let's get on to personal sad for just a little bit. Really? Or, I, I get so excited. You don't have to. By no, no, no. I'm, kid, I'm, making, I don't know, I'm making a joke. So it's called mm. Good Grief. Yes. Right. And where's yes. the title come from? Um, Charlie Brown, of course. Right. He's depressed all the time. No, it was a uh, it was it was really talking about um, this play was not always titled Good Grief. This play was not always going to be about this. This play was about. Um, it was going to be the third installation of my solo trilogy. And so so like, let's walk, walk back to the trilogy real quick. Great. So first we have Sexomedy, which mm-hmm. was a hypersexual, super femme liberation of the uh, European beauty standards impressed upon women and thinking about being body positive and sex positive in ways that were, again, liberating for your own spirit, for your soul, and to really accept yourself as the beautiful, central creature you are without impressing um, media standards of beauty. I was like, I was talking about nipple hair, ass hair, I stretch remember, marks. Yeah, I remember a couple you of those know, stories. Yeah, right? yeah. I'm talking about how awkward it is. I'm talking about what men's perception when we meet men halfway, unless we're having conversations beforehand, and how often are you having those you know, deeply sexual conversations before you enact on a first ho- date it, hookup. It's starting to change. It's starting to change. Well, thank, thank you, consent. It's t- yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 gone very slowly, but it's starting to get a little better. But I also think that's exciting because, like, Agreed. what what more uh, what could be more arousing than talking to someone you've not met before about like what they like and and trying to find um, some commonalities around what what pleasure is. Yeah, and um and how to center femmes when we've normally been centering um, male you know we've it, it, porn I think is very penis centered and it comes mm-hmm. from a very male lens because it it, it, is. it it goes to the consumer right right exactly and so we consume in those ways and so I you know the theme of like sexomedy was like porn has ruined everything about pleasure and I'm working really hard as a woman to deconstruct what I have thought about ple- my own pleasure because I'm o- more worried about what a man thinks about my body sure and and that has then in turn created a stigma of like how I view my own body based off of another person's lens so that was the first iteration was like really me talking about myself and then sushi frito was me talking about my intersectionalities and how I moved in the world and the relation of other people with me Mm -hmm. so I'm a black Latina first of all and so I'm thinking about like well I I live in multiple worlds all the time and then I'm being I'm Puerto Rican I'm shy Rican and I'm 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 domestic Rican I like cooking I like cleaning I actually like some of these old traditions but I'm super progressive um, I like to hold up traditions and traditional values, but I also think that maybe we shouldn't be eating out of a box. So I like to put adobo on my kale and quinoa in my salsa. And so like thinking about how people live in intersections all the time. And I started creating an o- my own language around um, how I walk in the world and how I take up space. You know, like sure. I can't wait for my, for my girls to take up brunch and like, I'm over here doing yoga too. And mm-hmm. I can't get yoga West of Western. And so I have to go east of Western. I have to leave my community to find the find those things. Um, I can't get a smoothie around here. It is uh, probably a little hard. 
Right. I don't know. I don't. I'm not in the smoothie hunt, but I, I'm thinking about it. Going, yeah, I can't see a smoothie place. No, the closest one I gave was over here on Brew, but but now there's new places like further west. So like, yep. you know, thinking about how how we can take back some of our own indigenous culture that white people have columbused and and capitalized off of. It's like we have every right to take up space in some of, of these places, and but it's inaccessible. So thinking about that in Sochifrito, and then my mom has been watching my solo shows my whole life, and she was like, well, if you can make a show about anything, why aren't you? talking about us we have a, a, a fantastic story so it didn't start out as a trilogy but it's become a trilogy it had always set out to be a trilogy oh really okay it had always set out to be a trilogy and said i'm gonna do these three i'm gonna do um me the world and family and so the third one was always going to be about me and my mom mm-hmm. well she was uh in sushi frito she kind of like interrupts me all the time i have a screen that pops up that's the iphone mom calling ah. and i have to like shoo it away all the time the next one the next one yeah. next up and i end with like all right you're next um, but then she got sick and three years ago, uh, she had committed suicide by not taking her medication and wow. that pill stopped her heart as she was trying to rack up some money to go move to Florida to take care of some children so she could feel useful in the world. And, um, it was, it was a detriment to me artistically because I, I would just felt like, like, I'm not, I, how can I tell a story? How can I? Um, how could I even continue? I had to do a lot of work around my own grief. I walked right into a spiritual practice. I'm now like three years into Santeria coming up on you four. You don't say. Yeah, All yeah. Right. I'm, I'm definitely in the Lukumi religion. Ooh. I've had. Okay. I've she had, just flashed beads, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I flashed my beads. Um, because I felt strongly that I needed to anchor and I needed to ground in order to not lose myself, not even artistically or professionally. I was like, I'm, I, how can I live without the one person that's been in my life my entire life? It's a mm. single mother, a single daughter. Um, we've been each other's bedrock. And... In that process, I slowly started to, I was still at Free Street. I quit doing stand-up comedy because I was like, I can't be around liquor all the time. I don't feel funny. You don't, I don't drink, wanna... Do you drink anymore? I'm sorry to interrupt. I still drink. Yeah. yeah okay. No, I, I'm good. I'm, okay. I'm, I'm a father's daughter. Okay. Um, I was uh, I was dating a sober person for a very long time. Yeah. And so um, I, I still kept that career up. But once my mother died, I was like, I don't feel funny. I don't feel funny. I don't feel like masking is healthy for me. And so I stopped doing stand-up comedy for a while, but I didn't stop doing storytelling Mm -hmm. and I didn't stop doing acting. Um, And then I realized, okay, how do I still tell my mother's story, but now layer on something, a component that is different from my other solo shows where I feel like it was me doing this because I needed to make room for myself in the performance world because I was not seeing any role or opportunity for a person that looked like me. That's where my solo career came out of was create your own if you don't see it um and i didn't want this for me i wanted to um share the struggle of finding mental wellness resources for my mother as you know we were just talking about insurance you know think about having mental illness substance abuse problems and autoimmune hepatitis and not having any of the programs and resources that you need in order to survive yeah and so five years we spent trying to care trying to figure out how to make her healthy and she just she couldn't she couldn't keep going on the way she did and so i i um decided to write about grief and just walking through it and all the ways in which like i couldn't find a counselor i couldn't find a bereavement counselor for six months when my mom died and i just had my uh, a sixth miscarriage for four months before i lost my mother i was losing my mind that's a lot you know it was a lie and i'm like there's there's literally no therapist i can go see because i know i need therapy it's right cuz it's really like, hard to find therapy without insurance it is and sliding scales like oh and i'm also you want $30 an hour $22 an mm. hour how about 8 i have mm. $8 yeah. to give you if i want to go every week because then that goes into my monthly budget so Thinking about how I was like, you know what, I'm, I got to get into I got to get into something ancestral, something ritual, something that's going to allow me to talk to her. And I was like, you know what, what I'm experiencing spiritually is also inaccessible, really, sure. because not everybody knows about this and not everybody knows about the kind of healing work that happens when you're talking to your ancestors, when you're talking to spirits, when you are in the room with people who have carried down a religion that's older than the church. Mm-hmm. You know, it is from our mother continent. And so um, I'm really thinking about like, man, this is another way people can free themselves is through healing work and giving people more than one option, more than one 
um, more than one way of like attaching themselves to the medical industrial complex and prescriptions, which aren't bad. It's just inaccessible sometimes. For, oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, what does it mean to go to an acupuncturist, actually, to open up a chakra that might have trauma building in your body that you might be feeling as back pain? But it's really your mom. You know, it's really the relationship you've had with your mom that's stuck there. Yo, that's big. Okay. I mean, the, you think that they're giant leaps, but they're super interconnected. So, like, sure. the, the, even just the way that stress lives in our body, that muscle tension isn't just from you scrunching your, your shoulders. It's because you're scrunching up your shoulders because you're tense about about something that you're stressed out about. It's an em- sure. em- Your emotions have a physical manifestation in your body. Okay. So trauma does live in your body in painful ways that give you physical and emotional pain. So what do you do and let me just I'll use myself as an example cuz it's mm-hmm. way easier. Yeah. Um what do you do? What do you tell a guy like me, right? Cuz mm-hmm. I'm a I'm a I'm a white man in America and mm-hmm. even I have gotten like run through the system of not being able to have access and not yes. having all kinds of stuff, right? So it's 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 clear that it's it affects a lot of people, right? Yes. Um but I'm also the type of person that believes in nothing. I'm like there is no god, nothing matters, yeah, nothing's sure. real, it's all nonsense. Everything is made up, it's all bullshit, right? Um what do you like how do you access a person like me? And I granted I'm I'm, I'm painting myself with a, a much more opaque brush than I personally am. No, but, I think it's like, an actually fine brush. But right? like, <laughs> you know, it's I, mean, I don't believe in a lot of things. So like what do you what do you how do you go to me with that? It just depends on what your goals are. It's like sure. it, it depends on what how you want to move in the world. If you think, you know, with all of that you're moving in the world just fine, then you don't need to work on you. You don't need to change you. But mm-hmm. if you do believe that like um there I want to be a more healthier person or like I'd like to wake up less angry in the morning. Word. Let's not think about it in terms of like uh, spirituality. Let's say we took spirituality off if you're saying, sure. like, I'm a person that believes in nothing. Right. But you do believe in science and energy. Of course. Right. Yeah. You do believe in the fact that meditation in the morning for five minutes might calm your breath. Agreed. Might center your equilibrium. Mm-hmm. Might actually, um, what sign are you? I'm a Taurus. All right. So as a Taurus, taking five minutes in the morning might calm the, sh- the stuff that you're already annoyed about when you wake up in the morning. Mm-hmm. Right. It was like, if I maybe leave five minutes earlier, I could avoid the rush hour because I know that this one person that goes into the bus, ev- or goes into the train every single morning, can't ever find her card, is going to make me mad on the way. And then I'm going to be okay. ranting about it in okay. my internal monologue oh, the right, whole way right, to work. Right. And that's going to set off the way that I greet people once I walk into the building. Right. So we do believe in the methodical ways in which we have an, an inner, mono- inner monologue and how that affects our daily life. We do believe in energy. Right. We do believe that. Um, actions get reactions. So if you start off calm, everything you do in the interim, you have you have a deeper reaction. So meditation, though, meditation is is an ancient ritual. Um, but we are now attaching it to like woo woo, yep. you know, you know, <laughs> a meditation guru. And we have to like do things that are that are outside of what our norm is. But if you can find a way to make meditation yours. If you can find a way to like use aimless wandering as a form of meditation, like mm. walking from your apartment to the train yep. and saying, I'm just going to get into the music. Music is a meditation. Mm-hmm. Music mm-hmm. is a therapy. Um, so like detach it from spirituality. Like okay. how do you want to be well? Sure. You know, how do you, and that is, that is bringing back ritual to you as your life, as you are as a person and how you want to walk in the world. Word. Okay. All right, so what's the so where is where does the jump happen from like all right, we agree that everything is well, there are ways there are actions reactions and stuff like very obvious stuff, mm-hmm. right? And then where does that jump go into talking about chakra and santeria and all that kind of stuff? Like where's where like how is that all connected? I think I think a lot of it is science. I think a okay. lot of it is um when we're just talking about energy is like I, we have kinetic energy and are, we are not disattached from detached from the earth, right? Mhm. And so when we're thinking about even astrology, like, yeah, there's there's 12 signs in the Zodiac, but it's really attached to where you were in relation to the stars, where when the planets were aligned. This is all science when you were born and how you share attributes to everyone that was born in that same minute, in the same hour. It's a finite science. You know, it's it. The accuracy only depends on how you are open to seeing the commonalities and, and the and the threads. So I think that the jump happens when we're thinking about science being connected energetically and being conscious. I think consciousness is the leap between how we believe in things that are logical and how we start to actually see things with 
a deeper eye, a, okay. thir- a third eye. Okay. You know, that allows us to, to use more of our brain than just what, like, what you can see and feel. Because if, if we, you know, if we take Einstein, for example, it's like, you know, people have been talking about using the most optimal part of our brains, brains that we don't tap into because we actually don't have the ability to anymore. But I think that if we did, we'd be seeing things that we would call magic. Hmm. On, on more regular basis. That's interesting. And I think that some of those coincidences are less coincidence and more divinity. It's like, oh, this is not a coincidence. I was supposed to meet you at this time. I was supposed to get, I was supposed to okay. leave my keys in the car so that way I wouldn't catch this bus because this bus flipped over. You know, like I was supposed to do this. That was supposed to happen. It's not a coincidence. It's divine. Okay. All right. I have a long way to go to get to where you're at, but uh, <laughs> but I feel no. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm I'm legitimately legitimately curious. I'm not big on uh, skepticism. I'm no. very much big on skepticism, but I'm also <laughs> very aware of cognizance, like being right. cognizant of how you behave in the world mm-hmm. affects how the world behaves Ripples, around you. Yeah. Right? Of course, absolutely. Yeah. And so. I think even just even just starting there, even just starting there and accepting that, you move with the consciousness of like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be such a bloop. Yep in the world right. today and that is going to affect somebody else of course yeah I'm um, with that. so that's not necessarily spirituality but it is everything we learned in kindergarten it is you're right it is most of the things well and i think about it so I was, earlier in the show i was talking about how i have a niece my eldest niece is very uh is a handful mm-hmm. and very smart and artistic and all that kind of stuff and mm-hmm. uh, i see a lot of myself in her mm-hmm. and now her parents are like she or my sister specifically her mother is like she's you <laughs> it's 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 wild it's isn't it wild genetics how she's you right? again science so there are questions of like okay how am i going to access this kid or how do i or how do i what advice could i give to her parents as this is how you access this kid in a way that's going to be effective but mm-hmm. also um disciplined you know what i mean yeah because you can't just let you can't just be like she's artistic let her run free and do whatever she wants like that is that's not rain her help. in yeah you have you got to rain yeah. everyone in people need yeah. to be there needs to be structure in people's lives or otherwise you know whatever um, so yeah I think it's I think it's interesting I'm trying to be a better person I'm doing the whole but if she's like you and, if she's like you and you see a lot of yourself in her wouldn't that connection be more important that you realize it was like oh this person needs someone like them that no understands doubt. them Absolutely. that advocates for them Absolutely. and I think that that's a care and maybe your heart will grow three th- three sizes too big for yourself. You know, Maybe. I and mean, I think that I think that relationship might be a healing. Agreed. You know, like I, I, I just think that a lot of people will will see it in different terms and perspectives. And I think a lot of what what I'm asking for is consciousness and healing work to um, heal trauma. And this play is about trauma. This play is about yeah. grieving. But it's also like, how do we how do we find joy in ourselves again? Like, how do we find joy in ritual? How do we find joy in our relationships? And how do we find joy in the things that um would normally be, be difficult mm-hmm. and so like i don't know how you are with your sister but yeah. is, is your sister saying that because like she had a hard time with you and they're like per- it's about your personality they don't like but like oh I think, yeah no yeah. i think it's that they get it like they're seeing this child is difficult and oh it's this kid how do we so they're, I mean, they're talking to me about it specifically yeah. because they might have some ins i might have some insight on right. the thing and it's not like right. she's a pain we're mm-hmm. gonna give up on her that's not at all the case i want to no. make that very very it's clear like how do we create a, a communal language around how right how do we because the, the all the things that the book tell us to do don't really work i don't know and, and I'm using that in quotes, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, like, the traditional things don't really work with kids that are atypical that way. Right. So you kind of go, like, how do we get there? I think I think that's all out of love, too. And I think if the root was uh, – the root of anything um, being less spiritual about anything and being more about, like, this is just the reality is, like, how do you move in the world with love? Mm-hmm. You know, and when you have engaged time with your niece, it's like, is that not out of love? Of course it is. Right. And of course so, it is. And so I think, you know, when you ask yourself, I believe in nothing, it was like, think of, <laughs> think of where the love comes from. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously I don't believe in nothing, but I don't believe in a lot of the things that, mm-hmm. like the woo-woo, I, I, I use the word hippie because I'm yep. white, but yeah. like uh, <laughs> the woo-woo friends around me, and I have a lot of them, so I'm mm-hmm. always like the dissenting angry guy in the middle of all the artists mm-hmm. um at least when i'm in the artist community so i'm yeah. trying to i'm trying to get better at it and i like to advocate for the things that i've seen with my own eyes mm-hmm. i've seen a lot of things sure and so like man i can't negate that now and i can't go back to not believing because the things that i've seen in a spiritual journey have proven to me that there's much much more Word. and i think that i i feel less about a higher i feel less about a god as a an all around you know like man-made theologist 
would say God is, and I think that God is us and all around us, like they say. Sure. Um, and I think that it, it for me it's always just a higher governing power. Okay. Right. A higher governing power. What what governs my morality and what's telling my intuition and my spirit where love comes from, how to move in the world. That's that's what that would be to me because I still I I've deconstructed a lot of things in in this religion that um, I grew up with, and it's Word. about. It's about not believing in your conditioning and believing about what you can see and feel in here. And your God is your God's not a lifeguard. He's not just sitting up in a tower swinging a whistle with dark sunglasses on, going like "You're wrong. Quit running. Stop He's doing." He's definitely stuff. laughing at me. Yeah. He's definitely yeah. laughing at me. Well, that's cool. <laughs> so, um, give me all the details on the new show, and then I'll ask you the last question. Great. So, uh, if you want to read more about uh, the show, you can find an article in the Chicago Tribune. Um, it's three stars, but don't believe that guy. Go to my Facebook and see all who, of the you know, who reviewed it. Um, <clears throat> Gerald Prince. Oh, okay. Um, Go on. So, uh, because he, because he doesn't get how how conscious how conscious narratives work, they jump all you over. Just have to stop sending. Whatever. Go on. I'm sorry. I know, but you know, hey, they the Tribune sent somebody. You know, in the 50 years of Free Street, it's tough. I've had the Tribune review one of my plays ever. Right. One. You know exactly. So you know. Big ups to whoever whoever even got sent. So thank you. But go to my Facebook page, uh, Melissa Dupre, and you'll see all of the testimonials of people who have seen it who will say this is a show where you need to bring your own tissue. It is hard to watch, um, but it's also the one show that has the most care involved. Every single performance, I have seven practitioners of various interdisciplinary healing disciplines. So like Reiki, like yoga, body work, acupuncture, napropathy, um, uh, herbalist, uh, you name it, I've got it. Uh, the National Alliance of Latino Arts and Culture gave me $5,000 to bring those folks to Free Street Theater at 1419 West Blackhawk on the third floor. Our next few performances are Thursday and Fridays at 6.30 p.m. and Saturdays at 2.30 with an accessible performance where there will be closed captioning on awesome. um, and industry nights so that artistic friends who say, I can't go see your theater because I got my own. Well, that can't have an excuse now um, on Monday the 16th. So we close the 21st. That's Thursday, Fridays at 6.30, Saturdays at 2.30, a Monday performance for accessibility on the 16th, and then we close on the 21st. Cool. And then get all the, all the dates and everything on the website? You can go to melissadupre.com or freestreet.org. And Dupre is spelled D-U-P-R-E-Y. D-U-P-R-E-Y. R-E-Y. All right. Dupre of the Humble Park Dupre's. Dupre of the Humble Park Dupre's. Here's my last question for you. Worst show you ever did? Worst show I could ever did? Could be individual show, could be a total show, whatever it is. Just what do you think of when I say, like, what's the worst show you ever did? Like, do you have a terrible hell show, hilarious one? Blackula, Chicago dramatist, <laughs> written by Reginald Edmond, who I went to college with in Texas, and he knows why. Oh, wow. You, you're going all the way in. Like, you named the, named the whole puppy. Uh, was the show a mess, or like was it hilariously terrible? Like what happened? It was hilariously terrible, and it also like had some really amazing actors who just lost their minds and and really didn't uphold any kind of like professional standards. We just kind of like drank whiskey before the show, and whatever happened happened. <laughs> That's good because you had to have fun with the script that was Blackula. Was it a long run? Uh, yeah, it was a pretty healthy run. Oh, really? It was a pretty healthy run, and and during Halloween, um, and it was it, think of 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 Eddie Murphy's uh, Vampire in Brooklyn. Vampire in Brooklyn, it, along those lines, but even more spoofier. Oh, okay. And it was just a hot hot mess. It was a hilarious hot mess, but I just don't think that that's the one professional piece of theater that I would put on my resume. That, hey, yo, that's fair. We all have those. <laughs> uh, Melissa Dupre, thanks for being here today. It's thanks really, for inviting it's, me, man. Guys. It's I can't believe that I didn't have you on before now. I can't believe it either. But this is what I'm telling about most of like my, my circles is like I cannot believe you forgot about me. I didn't forget about you. I like, think not, you did. No, I didn't forget about you. You know what? <laughs> I have a lot. I, I always assume no one wants to do the show. No, I would jump like up. No yes. one's my no one's my friends. Like no one likes me. No one wants to do the show. They don't like I you know anymore. But they would but still I'm way take more it. likable now than I used to be. That's I, the that's I the irony. I totally agree on that. You are so much more likable before. But I also like wow. I I I particularly like your brand of snark. But you are the snarkiest snark I've ever snarked <laughs> in my life. Um, and I I thoroughly enjoy it. But I think you've I uh, this is the softer side of Sears version. I I'm I'm a grown ass man. I'm becoming a grown-ass man. I think you're doing a lot of self-work, sir. Oh, that's very nice of you to say. Now I have feelings. You're the best. <laughs> uh, thanks for being here. Everyone else, you can always check us out. Of course, Bust Mouth, uh, BustMouth.com, B-U-S-T-E-D-M-O-U-T-H. 
Shoth.com. Uh, you can always find it there. You can email me directly at bustamouth at gmail.com. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, 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 blah. Find us on the Instagram and all the things. We're going to take, uh, you can see our picture together. We're going to take a selfie in a minute and put it up on the Instagram. This show is going to go out, of course, on Wednesday. For those of you listening in the future, you're already there. Uh, but I love you, and I'll see you later. Bye. Bye.